Welcome to yet another edition of An Artifactual Journey. I'm your host, Phil J. Merrill. I know it's been a minute since you heard this lovely voice, but we've been on a journey. And today we're excited to be in the presence of none other than... Greg Thompson. <laughs> and Greg Thompson happens to be a... a... Civil rights historian and the deputy director of Historic Claiborne Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis is known to many people as a hotbed of civil rights activity and business culture. We frequently think of Bill Street, and we're going to talk about that. We're even going to start off by talking about the unrest that took place on June the 13th. What could you add, Greg, about Brandon Weber, the 20-year-old gentleman who was killed by federal marshals last week? Well, not a lot that's not, you know, already known publicly. There was a warrant out for his arrest and for in some reason I don't fully understand the local police were cooperating with U.S. Marshals. It was alleged that he was being violent towards them, but then they shot him, I think, 20 times. Yeah. And that, as you know, set off a lot of demonstrations and protests in Fraser, just north of where our family lives in Memphis. And... Uh, you know, it's part of the ongoing story of it the is. struggle in Memphis. It seems like the more things change, the more they stay the same, exactly. correct? Right, yeah. And how far was this from where you physically were located? A less than a mile. But interestingly, and this is part of the legacy of segregation, it's part of the legacy of media silence. There was not really a lot of knowledge of what was happening citywide. Like, you know, you could look at national media outlets and have the impression that Memphis was on fire and the whole city was in chaos. In fact, it felt like business as normal for most of the city because, as it always has, because Memphis is highly segregated. Right, and right. so even in less than a mile away, the only way I knew what was happening in Fraser, which is an adjacent neighborhood to where I live, was through the media. I knew you were going to wow. say that. I didn't want you to say that. Yeah. Uh, so here we are miles away, hours away in Pennsylvania, and I could follow it on Twitter. Tammy Sawyer, the yeah. Shelby County Commissioner, was, sure, yeah. was very active on Twitter. So I was following it right as it was jumping off, you know, miles away. And there you are right in the throes of it. And but not only am I there in the next neighborhood, I'm also someone who's deeply involved in the kind of social life of the city living in a largely African-American neighborhood. And I don't know anything about except through Tammy, who is a friend and who has been involved at Claiborne Temple. She's been leading a lot of our community engagement efforts. She's now a candidate for mayor and who is now receiving death threats. I follow her on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I'm very impressed with her, her involvement and her commitment to the mm -hmm. cause. Yeah, she's for real. And yeah. she's been a great ally to us at Claiborne Temple. My goodness. Let's keep this exciting story moving. Right here, well, what are you holding in your hand? It looks like a 19th century photograph of Benjamin Albert Imes, who is 19th century pastor in Memphis and is described at the time as one of the best educated minister in all of Memphis, an African-American, but who was pastoring a white church and pressed to integrate public facilities. And this is again in the 19th century in Memphis, and but also suffered a lot during the race riots of the 1880s. And so when you see this again, do we see any similarities? I mean, uh, what, what color are you? <laughs> yeah, he, he looks like he could have been my uncle, except he has, except he has better, uh, better hair than I do, uh, <laughs> which is not saying a lot. But, but also you see that this African-American who was born free in 1848 in Pennsylvania was right in the throes of a segregated environment where he's there to do uplift. You are also a pastor, I might add. Right. Of what denomination? A Presbyterian. A Presbyterian. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you were doing some similar kind of uplift in a largely segregated pocket, mm -hmm. much like Benjamin Himes was doing in the 19th century. And I just wanted to add this one plug because I'm in love with Ida B. Wells, the second congregational church 
that Iams pastored was also the church that yeah. Ida B. Wells attended. Where she attended. Where she yeah. attended. So again, the civil rights activity is just like every step you take historically and presently is just alive. That's and, right. And, and One of the most interesting things about Memphis is that when we talk about civil rights activity, it's not just about protest, but it's right. about the cultivation of black institutions and strong overlapping networks of black institutions that are actually have created a definitive sort of character. So here you have a minister of a, an important African-American church living and working around an area where there's vibrant African-American businesses. He has Ida B. Wells, you know, who's obviously doing African-American media right, right. Uh, in his congregation. And so that's one of the interesting things about that, that still endures in Memphis about living in what, you know, what people call a quote, chocolate city is it's a majority African-American city. And there are all kinds of strong black institutions that are a legacy of, of this man's work and other people and Robert Church's work. Well, and you just segued into Robert Church. Now you're holding in your hand another rare photograph, but this one happens to be of... This is of the first Baptist church on Beale Street. It was originally called Beale Avenue, but Beale Street, the first historically black church that was constructed in Memphis. And actually, interestingly, in, in 1890s was the home of the first black newspaper was in this church. And so this is a church that's about two blocks from Claiborne Temple. What is it near Claiborne Temple? It yeah. just seems like everything that we say is within a stone's throw of the well, historic that, Claiborne well, that, well, Temple. Well, that's right. Well, remember, everything is close to the river. This is just a part of the city's development. And okay. so Claiborne is about two blocks off the river, the Mississippi River. Miss, okay, thank yeah, you. Yeah, so there's three blocks. There's Front Street, then there's Main Street, and then there's you know where Claiborne is, which is now MLK. And so and Beale Street is just around the corner, and you know we'll, we walk by this church Regularly. And this photograph that I'm holding is a group of people who are standing on the steps of that church. Through deep research, we've struck out, including talking to people with the Asala chapter of Memphis. It's some organization within the church that was uh, posing uh, because they have their regalia on. They have sashes on. And they and have hats. sashes and, and they have fez hats and so forth. But we can't come up with what the uh, initials mean. Yeah. But nonetheless, this is a circa 1920s-ish Photograph, okay. photographed by the important Hooks Brothers, okay, which has a civil rights connection. And a lot of people outside of the Memphis area don't know that Benjamin Hooks, the noted former director of the NAACP, was the son of one of the Hooks Brothers photographers. photographers. Yeah, and, and one of the things amazing about this picture is that Memphis is a place that has an unusual amount of explicitly documented African-American photographs, you know, documenting African-American life largely because of the Hooks brothers. And right, right. It's amazing. It's amazing to uh, a northerner because up here you hear about Addison Skurlock in D.C. or James Van Der Zee or, or Walter Baker in Harlem or, or Arthur L. Macbeth in Baltimore. So it's fascinating to learn about two brothers that are just documenting the South in a fabulous way. Yeah, it's very cool. So... All that leads us to what you know the best. Yep. I think you know it the best, right? Uh, of all the things we've talked about. I okay. <laughs> yeah. Is that what are you holding in your hand right now? Right now I'm holding a, a photograph of historic Claiborne Temple. This appears to be uh, in 1951. Yeah. Claiborne Temple was originally Second Presbyterian Church, mm. built in the 1890s, opened in 1891. The cornerstone was laid. In 1949, it became an AME church when, as happened in churches in uh, cities across the South, large white institutions moved out of the city and into the suburbs. And this is a photograph just two years later. You can see it's a women's missionary convention. They're standing on the street outside on, her, on Hernando Street, 294 Hernando in Memphis. And interestingly here, the 
there's a row of stained glass windows, which are still intact. And then there's a row of glass windows above that appear to have been removed when Second Presbyterian Church left. And it's not clear that they had been fully replaced yet. Have you ever seen this picture or one like this before? I never have. You know, one of the things about Claiborne is most of the photographs that are extant that I have seen are the or the church is empty or it's a, during the civil rights era. So clearly in like 1966 and 1968, but I've never seen an active, vibrant congregation photograph. I'm sure they exist. I just haven't seen them. What makes this extra exciting to us is that before the podcast, you were talking about the possibility of some of your contacts having relatives that could could have been members. Or yeah, I, I'm. I think it's almost certain that people that I know in Memphis, their parents or grandparents would have, would be in this photograph, um, or would certainly know someone in this photograph, because Claiborne Temple was an anchor institution. While Beale Street Baptist, as we said, was like the first. Claiborne was the AME. Okay, um, okay, okay. And, you know, so those distinctions between the Baptists and the AME, that was, this was a really important AME church. Of course, it became the gathering place for the sanitation worker strike in 1968. It's where Coretta King left, led the march in 1968 after King was killed. So 25,000 people gathered in the street outside here, the same wow. street. Sanitation workers walked by this same route every day. The um, same route. Same yeah, same route. They would come out a door that's just out of view of this picture, come out and walk up this sidewalk. It's an amazing thing. And and a lot of the people, because Memphis is a multi-generational city, not a transient city, okay. a lot of the people that are either on our board or have come back into the building since we've reopened it are descendants of, I suspect, the people in this photograph. What a great connection. Yeah, it's what amazing. a wonderful narrative. Yeah, it's a beautiful <laughs> picture. Graph. Thank you. And with that said, what's going on with this buzz that I keep seeing on the internet surrounding this the sanitation strike, the, the the renovation and restoration of Claiborne Temple. Could you just enlighten our listeners for a moment? Yeah, sure. So Claiborne Temple closed to the public in the in the late 1980s, and there was just a big fence that was put around it. The AME closed it, but I think we're not able to set, to actually preserve the building well. And so over the past 30 to 40 years, it has fallen into massive decline so, you know, the ceiling is rotted out, the roof truss, the mm. floors are all gone, the pews are gone. And so in 2016, someone bought it to keep it from being torn down, essentially, from the AME with the promise that they would restore it and also memorialize the events that had happened there. So I'm just going to come on and say, it. how does a white pastor from Virginia get involved in a white Presbyterian pastor right. get involved with a historic site in the Deep South, in, in Memphis? Well, so, I mean, my, my academic training is in the history of the Civil Rights Movement, okay. specifically in King, and, okay. my, and the last chapter of my okay. dissertation was about the sanitation workers. Ah, I see, you're holding out um, on it. Yeah, you're holding yeah. out on it. Yeah, and so, but when I was doing my PhD, I couldn't go to Claiborne because it was closed. <gasps> and so I was visiting Memphis as a consultant for some other projects, and this person took me to Claiborne. And How did you feel when you finally got to that well, historic I, place? you know, it's funny. When I drove up, they said Claiborne Temple. I didn't make the connection until I walked in, and I was was like, wait a minute, right. I'm inside the, the light bulb moment, I'm inside right? the light sanitation bulb. worker strike. Right, right, right. And it was obviously thrilling. How did it smell? Quiet. Did it have that, that? Oh yeah, it had the old building yeah, the old smell. Building smell. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it felt sacred in, in a yeah, sense cool. and inspired in the sense that, you know, this is known as the last campaign of the classical era of the civil rights movement. And so being there, knowing that King was there, that Lawson was there, that the funeral for Larry Payne, this unarmed 16 year old boy that was shot by the police was held there two days before King was killed. And directly adjacent to the NBA arena and Beale Street, but there's been no development. Remember, this is the site of the sanitation worker strike, which is about economic justice. It's now the poorest neighborhood in the entire state of Tennessee. 
The poorest neighborhood. Yeah, Say that again. The poorest neighborhood in the entire state of Tennessee. Average income of $12,000. Unemployment rate of 60%. And oh, so... About the incarceration, the pipeline, the prison. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so part of what you see is this... Memphis has essentially told the story of the civil rights movement through the death of King. Right, right. And so if you go to the National Civil Rights Museum, which is a marvelous institution and... and you know, Can't have, wait to go. Want to yeah, go. we have people who work there on our board... But one of the things that is true is that the focal point of that museum is the is the balcony where King was slain. Right, right. And so if you come to Memphis, what, the civil rights story that you hear culminates at the assassination of somebody who was not from Memphis by somebody who was not from right, Memphis. Right, right. While two blocks away, Claiborne Temple, which is where all this stuff was actually happening, has been allowed to fall into disrepair. And so what I saw, and I said to the owner that day, I said, Memphis is understood as the place where the dream died. Why don't we change the narrative? What if we re- restored that place and said, this is where the I Am A Man signs were printed, in the basement of this building? Say that again. Say the, that so the, I, the I Am A Man signs that, you, that are sort of iconic. Indeed iconic, yeah, yes. Or printed in the basement of this building. I've been building. trying to buy one for decades. Yeah, yeah. Can't if you find get, one. If you get one, we're going to have to wrestle for it. Oh, but well, the, yeah. okay, but I got secrets, so we'll, we'll I know talk you do. about that later. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a sense in, in which... This was a movement that was built around human dignity and the notion of human personhood. It was also a movement where black nationalists and church leaders came together. And that story is not being told. And so restoring that building, building the I Am A Man Plaza, reopening this back up to the public, that has been amazing. The I Am A Man Plaza was an initiative between a, a local foundation and the city and Claiborne Temple to to memorialize the sanitation workers. There was no public memorial to them at all. And if you, if you're, if your listeners were to Google, you know, I'm a man plaza in Memphis, what you would see is that the selection committee essentially commissioned an artist to come up with a design. And the design that they chose was a big, I'm a man sculpture, um, just built around the words and, and, but inscribed on those words are the words to King's last speech. One side is, is, like copper, and the other side is highly polished steel, so you can see your own reflection in the oh, Iron Man. I like that self-reflection. Yeah. That's nice. And then there's a, almost in a Vietnam memorial style, there's a large curved wall with all the 1,300 names of the sanitation workers strike. And then around the base of the I'm a Man sculpture, there's a quotation from James Lawson's sermon that talks about being made in the image of God as human beings. Right. And so that's there. And that was, I think, the first step was the, the ethics of memorialization are, are complicated. But one, they, they one, are, element, one element of that memorialization motivation for that was to say right here in this neighborhood where the city tore down the public housing, displaced people, where the people that remain are, you know, formerly incarcerated people who 60% of whom are not employed, we needed to put a monument to, to human dignity there and say, we're going to reestablish and insist on this. And now the question is that how do we reopen the building and develop programming that not only reflects, but sustains and perpetuates that notion of human dignity. And with this human dignity, can we put a price on human dignity? Priceless. Indeed it is priceless. But in this case, you have to have a collaboration of, of funders. What kind of Rubber hits the road. What kind of dollars are you talking about to bring this effort to fruition? Well, so the the initial stabilization of the building was about $700,000 just to get it so it wouldn't fall down on you when you went in. Once that was done, then we raised an additional $4 million for the stabilization of the roof, repointing the stone, restoring the stained glass. Mm. And now we have to raise essentially another $7 million to do the... The sanctuary, which is going to cost about $1.5 million to restore that, 
And then there were educational buildings, one of which fell down, which mm. needs to be put back up, one of which needs to be restored. So I think overall, I mean, we're talking about a $25 million project. And what role does the musical play come yeah. in? How does that fit into this Yeah, so for the benefit of the, of the listeners, one of the things that we did early is we knew we needed to tell the story of the sanitation worker strike. Because we knew that people people know that King went to Memphis and died there, but very few people seem to understand why he went. And it's important to understand that the sanitation workers were the last people that really inspired King. Nobody in his life thought that he should go to Memphis. Uh-huh. In fact, every, every one of his advisors argued against it. But he went because he saw in the sanitation workers a, a merger of race and class, of church and black nationalism, of and justice activism that sought the well-being of the city. So it's the last, I mean, this is why he says in his last speech, something is happening in Memphis. You know, I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything because I, I've, I've been to the mountaintop. And who I think, knew? And, knew? I, and I think that part of, you know, and I gave a lecture at UVA where I said what he was referring to in that was he saw something in the sanitation workers strike led by James Lawson that he had not seen since 1965. Because remember, from 65 to 68, King was essentially out of the game. Nobody was listening to him. Black nationalism was on the rise. He was depressed. He had no idea what the future of the movement was. He was opposing Vietnam. And when he saw Memphis, he said, this is what I want to be a part of. And so he went and he, he said in the aisles after the speech, it feels like the old days again. So that's what drew him. So he was to, energized in a he way. He was energized. And so when you see that clip of him saying, I'm happy tonight, I'm not worried about anything, I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. There's one sense in which that's a, that's a rhetorical device that he used. But there's another sense in which Memphis had reignited that in him. And so we wanted to be able to tell that story. A lot of people don't know that. So what we did is, to get back to the musical, I realized that we needed to tell the story of the sanitation worker strike. But we wanted to do it through an art form, I would say a, a black art form. So it could reach a larger It could reach a large, larger audience. People that wouldn't come to say, I want to hear a lecture right. about this, or I want right. to talk about the building, or but I even want to see it. will come to your play. But if you want to, if it's a soul music right. basis with rap lyrics, a lot of dance, we tell the truth about Mayor Loeb, the kind of mayor who was the steward of the white supremacist order. We show the sanitation workers, we show James Lawson, we show the invaders that were the kind of local black nationalist group and, and the women of the movement nice. and how do they all interact with one another. And so we wrote that musical and have now you know begun to perform that around the country. Where can our listeners go online to learn more about this magnificent work at Claiborne Temple? So two places. You can go to claiborne-temple.org. Okay. Claiborne-temple.org. Or for the musical, you can go to unionthemusical.com. Unionthemusical.com? Unionthemusical.com. And that'll just give you a sense of who the executive production team is. You can see some video clips. And as we're, we're now in a place where we've performed it publicly, we're revising it. We have performances in Memphis in September, and then we're starting an East Coast East Coast shows in February. So there's a good chance that yours truly with Artifactual Journey can partake in this magnificent... Well, event. I absolutely hope so. <laughs> We've been invited to perform it at the theater at Lincoln University in, in the area here next spring, so I, oh, hope that, I hope that we'll do that. But we're definitely going to Charlottesville, Virginia in 2020. We'll also go to Richmond, Birmingham. Very, very so, exciting. Yeah. Your title with this movie? At Claiborne Temple, I'm the deputy director, which means I work for the extraordinary executive director, Anasa Trotman, doing whatever needs to be done. And I am the co-creator and one of the producers of the play. Outstanding. I mean, Thank in your wildest dreams, working on your dish did you ever visualize anything of this magnitude? 
No, of course not. I mean, I thought I was going to be a pastor who did a PhD and maybe taught some seminary classes and did the conventional pastor thing. And then after the Charleston shootings, there's a friend of mine named Joshua Dubois who actually ran Obama's faith-based office. And he basically said, I don't know what you're doing hiding out in these white institutions. <laughs> you know, working at UVA and right, pastoring this right, church and right. just being a woke white guy. You right. know, I need you in this game a little bit. And so, you know, I left the church and left UVA and said, I want to go work for an African-American institution and use whatever I have to serve that rather than, you know, leading myself. Well, we're so excited that he was able to get you to be more than just a woke pastor somewhere <laughs> where you are actually in the game, in the community, touching people's hearts and minds and, and helping to uplift. I mean, we're in an era where we need uplift from all different directions, mm-hmm. different denominations, colors, and you're clearly wearing multiple hats doing a, a great job of that. Well, thanks, and thanks for having me on this. Oh, this has been a pleasure.